Amen. Well, good morning. All right. So I got a few things to introduce to you this morning. If my iPad will turn on. All right. Good. It's the backup one, but it's the one not working. All right. So we're going to be in the book of Jonah today. So I've asked you to bring a Bible and bring a notebook. And today, hopefully you brought a, an actual Bible, a paper Bible, one that does not give you Facebook and TikTok updates in the middle of your reading. But uh, I also asked to bring like a notebook, a journal, and said I'd give you a challenge today. And so I know we printed some uh, like little things for notes in the back of the seat, but then as I looked for them, I didn't see them. And so maybe your seat has them. I, maybe the seat in front of you has them. Maybe they don't. I don't really know. But uh, I do know this. I've got some journals in my office. I was going to offer, like, if for, you want to start taking notes through service, which we're going to ask, we're going to encourage you to do. Uh, you want to see me afterwards. We've got some nice journals that we gave out at the men's retreat and uh, are pretty cool. So the idea is today that we're going to start doing right at the end of the message. We're going to start asking, what is one takeaway from the message that you heard today? And so what is one thing you're taking from the message, whether you know, it's me this week or you know, somebody else in a different week who is teaching, whatever, who, what is one takeaway that you're going to work on over the week? And so if you are sitting alone, maybe you're going to scoot and turn to somebody beside you or behind you or in front of you, maybe if you're in a family maybe talking to your kids, but what is one takeaway? So I want you to be thinking about that before we start the message so that when we do it, you're ready for that. And so that's the challenge for today. Take some notes, consider, even as I, I offer you some application at the end of the message, what is something you're going to take away from the message today that you want to work on? Now, second thing, we're going to start the Minor Prophets today. And so the Minor Prophets are the final 12 books of the Bible in the Old Testament. Right? So they're the, the final words of the Old Testament leaning up to or ending the Old Testament, readying us for the New Testament. Right? And so Jonah is one of them. If you've got a Bible from the chairs in front of you, I can tell you right now it's on page 774. And here's a timeline of the minor prophets. And so we're going to be doing Jonah today. And you see all, there's all 12 down the bottom. We flirted with a title called 12 Angry Men, because that's fundamentally kind of how they come across sometimes. Wait till we get to Obadiah. He is a grumpy man. I'm just telling you. But these prophets, and let me define prophet for you. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God, God's message, and then I say this, almost always to the people of God. Now, it's almost always to the people of God, because today, actually, Jonah is called to go give God's word to a people group outside of God's people. We'll see that today. But really, the message today is for God's people. And so again, it stays fairly consistent. So a prophet is not some future-telling person. Most of the time, they spoke to the culture about them and about their lives. Rare was the occasion where they said something more future. But it's God's messenger who speaks God's word with God's authority, typically to God's people. So that's what a prophet is. The minor prophets are called that because they're shorter books. In Hebrew literature, they're just called the 12, right? They're 12 shorter books. And so we see kind of a timeline here, and I want to give you some big pieces of the timeline. And so at one point, when Israel enters into their land... And they have a king. First it's Saul, and then you know King David, their most pronounced leader. His son, Solomon, becomes king. Well, it all goes south after that. And part of it is about Solomon not discipling his children. And so, again, when we talk about families and, and dads and parents discipling your children, really, and I'm not trying to overemphasize this, but really that's what goes wrong, is Solomon has all these kids with all these women and then he doesn't invest himself in, their, in himself in their lives. And so the ones that grow up to take over are not committed to their faith. And so what happens there is they mislead the people. So it's the next generation after that that the kingdom splits. And you get the northern and southern kingdom. Northern kingdom, Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. Now, both remain mostly unrepentant. In fact, if you're a little nerdy... Between the two kingdoms, there are about 40 kings. 
of those 40 kings, 20 in the north, 20 in the south, in the north, in Israel, zero out of 20 are good. Defined as following God and pushing out idolatry. Zero. Of the 20 kings in the southern kingdom, eight out of the 12 try and rid Judah of idolatry and follow God. Most don't. You with me? Not a great scene. So after the split, we see two kingdoms. And these prophets tend to call the nation to repentance. And the warning often is, if you don't repent, God is going to have someone come in and conquer you. And that eventually happens. Assyria conquers the northern kingdom, and then Babylon conquers the southern kingdom. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, Babylon conquers Jerusalem, the, the final holdout for Judah. That's the southern kingdom, right? Assyria before that conquers the northern kingdom. So primarily the message is repent. Primarily the or if or else is another nation will come in and conquer you. And so all that happens, and then we see them in the dispersion, we see them in Babylon, we see them dispersed, and then the end of the Old Testament ends where we ended a little over, about a year and a half ago, in Ezra and Nehemiah, as they're being allowed to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild. So that's kind of a meta-narrative of the Old Testament from the kings on forward. The minor prophets live in all those seasons, before the division, in the northern kingdom, and in the southern kingdom, in the exile, and then some in the final return to Jerusalem. Today is Jonah. If it's written by Jonah, really doesn't matter. If it's written by him, then his life exists in the earliest part of that. I'm going to show you a verse in 2 Kings that we will put on the screen. So Jeroboam II, that's a king of the northern kingdom, restored the border of Israel according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by a servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter. So Jonah exists right as the division of the kingdoms happen, and the second king of that era is when Jonah lives. So we're going to start with him. We're in the northern kingdom, and here's our main idea for the day. We're just going to give it a title because I just wanted to be fun. A fish, a plant, a worm, and an angry prophet. There you go. I don't do a lot with titles, but there you go. All right? The book of Jonah is unique because God is revealing himself as merciful to the Jews and non-Jews alike. Jonah is resistant and must learn this lesson. All right? So God is revealing himself as merciful to both Jews and non-Jews. Modern-day version. God is merciful to both Christians and non-Christians. God wants the gospel to go out to people that look like us and people that don't look like us. You with me? And really, Jonah is, uh, the book of Jonah is all about God teaching the prophet Jonah that lesson. All right, here we go. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid a fare and went down into it. Notice he went down to Joppa, down into the ship. That's going to be a theme here in chapter 1. He went down into Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So God says, go to Nineveh, the great city. When he says great, here's what God means, or here's what we learn about this. Nineveh, for about 50 years of history, was the largest city in the world, in the known world. Nineveh was a gigantic city. And for about 50 years, it held the title of being the largest city in the world. Now, they are also, this is probably important for you to understand, they're also the enemy of God's people. They persecute the Jews in Israel constantly. So they're constantly battling them and, and doing damage to them. And so the Jews see them as enemies, rightfully. And they're a gigantic city, and they're not friendly to those in Israel. And so when God says to Jonah, a prophet in Israel, in the northern kingdom, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to proclaim that if they don't repent, they're going to be judged, Jonah says, functionally, no. And Jonah runs the other direction. And what we see in this chapter is he goes down to Tarshish, he goes to a ship, he goes down into the ship, and what we're going to see is this constant decline 
of Jonah as he flees, and it says, flees the presence of the Lord. God says, go tell them. He says, no, goes the other direction. All right, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the, threat, the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Notice, cried out to their own idols, their own worship. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship to the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down, see it again, gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, right, whoever you worship, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So here's what happens. The sailors come to Jonah, like, why are you not up praying to whoever you pray to? Like, we're all praying to who we pray to because there's a gigantic storm. And we've tried to throw everything overboard that weighs us down so that we might be lightened and we might not drown. Get up. Why are you sleeping? Right? Get up. Pray. Whoever you pray to, pray. Verse 7, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots. So this is the sailors, the mariners. They look at each other, they say, let us cast lots. It's kind of a roll of the dice, if you will, kind of rock, paper, scissors idea. It's a bit of a chance, but it was used both by Jews and non-Jews to determine what to do. Almost like a divine intervention, God controls the dice, if you will, all right? So they cast lot, and it fell, the lot fell on Jonah. Verse 8, and they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us, what is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. There's an interesting statement. Who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So this is interesting. Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Well, I'm not exactly sure how much he fears God at this moment because he is fundamentally disobeying him, right? So the fear of the Lord, as Proverbs says, is the beginning of wisdom. You make better decisions with a bit of reverence and fear of God, right? Jesus says, don't fear those who can put the body to death, but fear God who can deal with your body and your spirit forever, right? Like So this fear of the Lord in, in good ways, in healthy ways, and some ways that are probably trembling, if you will, are good for us to understand who God is. That God is not just this, you know, oh, God is love. Well, is God love? Sure, God is loving. He's also just and holy. He is judge, right? He is both wrath and mercy and, and all kinds of things. So a healthy fear of God is good. And Jonah says, well, I fear the Lord, the God who created everything. Now, he's right on everything he says about God. I just question does he truly fear God? And I say that because that's an interesting question for us today, right? As we look around at the world around us, and maybe this, is, maybe this relates to you, maybe this relates to people you know, maybe whatever. Oh, I'm a Christian. Well, what does that exactly mean? In America, that means I was born here. I'm not an atheist or a Buddhist. Therefore, I celebrate Christmas. I'm a Christian. That's a pretty poor definition, right? So people say, oh, I'm a Christian. And yet, their life looks nothing like Christ. Now, bear in mind, I say that knowing we're all flawed. We all fall short. If you're new to generations, that's something you'll hear a lot. We know how broken we are. But our job is to pursue Jesus, to, to grow in and to live towards and to follow Jesus. I almost never use the word Christian because it's been so watered down. So Christ follower for me right? Someone who gets up every day intent to follow Jesus, whatever that may mean. Now, I hope to live my life like that. Flawed as it may be, that's my goal, right? Let that be our definition of Christian. Now, Jonah's not really doing that. When he got up that day and God spoke to him, he went the other direction. Yet he says, I fear the Lord. So again, a good question, do we really truly fear God? Do we really truly follow Jesus? Or is it by default what we think we are? Verse 11, then they, meaning the sailors, the mariners, said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Verse 13, nevertheless, 
The men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. You'll notice that the, the sailors, the mariners, care more about Jonah's life than Jonah does. They're actually rowing hard, fighting the sea for him. Because the answer was pretty clear. The lot fell to him. So they rock, paper, scissors their way down to Jonah's fault, right? And then Jonah says, I know this is because of me. Here's what I'm doing. I'm running from God. And they become afraid. And they're like, well, what do we do? We just throw me in the ocean. And they're like, or throw me in the sea, excuse me. And, and they don't yet. So they try and fight hard on his behalf. Obviously, it doesn't work. God causes more and more storm. The harder they, they fight, the harder they row, the more storm God gives them. God's clearly going to come out on top. Verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord. Now, this is the sailors who didn't believe in God, who approached this conversation with, pray to whoever you pray to, because that's what we're doing, right? Now, they call out to God and says, O Lord, verse 14, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Would love to have been there in that moment, right? Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let me summarize that last sentence. Sailors who didn't worship God now worship God. Right? So sailors get saved as Jonah gets thrown in the ocean. Now there's some, some weird things going on. God clearly speaks to the, or doesn't say he speaks to, but you get my point, clearly causes the ocean to do what the ocean does, right? God reveals who the problem is. God saves the people from the problem. The only person who's not doing what God calls them to do is the guy who represents God. Also, should probably be a challenge for some of us, right? How often are we the ones that should be the best representative and yet are not? right? So we'll put this on the screen for you. God is sovereign over outcomes. The sailors convert to worshiping God, even though Jonah was a terrible witness. God's sovereignty over salvation shows his mercy. When we talk about a belief that God is sovereign over salvation, that doesn't absolve us from our role. The church is called to be the church, a light in a dark world, a witness for Jesus. But God's still going to do what God's going to do, right? God's gonna God, right? And so these sailors get the point. They get the message. God shows mercy to them, doesn't destroy them, and they turn and become followers of God. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So a giant fish swallows Jonah. Okay. And he's in there three days and three nights. Now again, there's two things that I just want to point out to you as we do these book overviews, right? So we're doing whole book one day. Now, Obadiah is one chapter. That's not hard, right? Hosea is like 13 chapters, right? Or 12 or 13 chapters. And so, again, we're going to pick what is best to, to proclaim the theme of the entire book. With jo Jonah, it's fairly short. We're going to read through about two-thirds of it today. But at the end of each chapter, at the end of each section, if you will, if there were no chapters and verses, we would know that each kind of scene is coming to a close because God acts at the end of each scene. He saves the sailors and then appoints a fish to do the job Jonah should have done to begin with. Are you with me? All right. So scene one ends. Jonah's in the ocean. Well, not well in the ocean, but in a fish, in the ocean, going down, 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 and disobedience. Meanwhile, sailors come to faith. Go figure. All right. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So Jonah prays from within the fish for his own deliverance. Now, I want you to see this, and, and I'm going to go back to the, I think it was the third song we did today. Is that right, Alex? It's Psalm 8. So the third song we did today, as Alex was introducing it to us, is a psalm, right? from the book of Psalms in the Bible. Psalms exist as kind of a hymn book in the Bible, if you will, filled with things that we can sing or pray. They can be done either way, because songs really kind of are prayers anyways. They're just melodic, pleasing-sounding ones. At least when someone else sings, not when I sing them, they're not super pleasant, but you get the idea. 
And so we are leaning into singing some psalms. Now, here's the struggle. They were written in Hebrew thousands of years ago, and they don't always translate so melodically, or you know, they don't rhyme in English, but maybe they did in Hebrew, as an example. And so it's hard. They don't always fit our, our language. We even try to find those that do and, and sing those. So we sang Psalm 8, and Psalm 8 has been kind of blended with the Lord's Prayer. So we said the Lord's Prayer earlier out of Matthew, and we sang that song that has Psalm 8 and, and the Lord's Prayer in it from Matthew 6. Well, Jonah, now, all of chapter 2, if you're looking at your Bible, has these kind of phrases, they're stanzas, that will show you that they're psalms that he's saying. So Jonah, literally from the belly of a fish, is praying a collection of, I, I lost count, how many psalms he references in there. And so he is praying at his kind of probably low point in his life, and his prayer is a series of psalms he has memorized. So here's a note for you, praying the psalms. Praying through the psalms is how people have learned to pray for thousands of years. It is God's word for prayer and praise and other things, lament and worship and a lot of things, but it's God's word for prayer and for song directly from Scripture. There's been a time I've shared this story a lot. I remember it well. I have a habit of getting up every morning. I get up before, uh, before the day, long before the day starts. I get up, and the first thing I do is, well, the first thing I do is get coffee. Then I sit down and I pray, right? Because I want to be awake when I pray. And so there have been seasons where they're just tougher times. And I just kind of, I remember I just explained it as one time I just ran out of words. I just had prayed everything I could think of to pray. And I'd get up and I'd get coffee and I'd sit on my couch. And I remember just, I ran out of words. And I, I was faithful to getting up and doing it. But sometimes I just ran out of what to say. And, and the way back was, one, I stayed with it. I didn't quit. And that's important. I think that's probably the most important thing I can tell you. But the second thing is the Psalms. I started to pray through the Psalms. And so I was sitting with somebody this week, I think it was Chris, we were talking about uh, he and Angela reading the Bible together. It was you, right? And he and Angela reading the Bible together, and what should we read and do this? And I also encouraged a psalm a day. Now, I know, Psalm 119 is giant, so read part of it, you know, when you get there, right? But by the time you get there, you'll know that. But psalms help us pray and worship. And so that's what Jonah does. All of chapter 2 is Jonah praying through different psalms as he is at his We'll say rock bottom, but in the fish, whatever you want to call that. And so Jonah prays through the Psalms. Verse 10, I want you to skip down to verse 10. It says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up, out upon, excuse me, the dry land. Just because it's fun, and because it's the last thing in this scene, right, where God acts again, tells the fish what to do, and the fish vomits, that's just such beautiful language, vomits Jonah up on the shore. I want you to picture... About 3,000 years ago, a Jewish prophet who's angry, running from God, now smells like fish stomach for three days. You're welcome. All right. That was the only reason I did that. No, it was just for fun. All right, Jonah 3, verse 1. Now, I want to read through this whole section. It's small, and it's pretty easy to understand. So verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So you could walk for three days from edge to edge in this city. It's a big city. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. So he goes a, a complete day's walk in, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let me just comment. That is the worst eight-word gospel message ever given. Right? That is just horrible right? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's Jonah's message to Nineveh. Now it says, go deliver the message that I give you. It never says what God said to him. Maybe these are exact words. Maybe this is how much he cares. We don't know. But this has to be the worst gospel message ever. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So let's see what this horrible, low-level, low-energy gospel, let's see what it yields. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. You got to love it. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. From the greatest of them to the least of them, the word reached the king of Nineveh. 
And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, no food. Let them not feed or drink water, so no drinks either. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out to mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Possibly the worst gospel message ever result in an entire massive city that opposes God turning to God. Like from servant to the king, right? So it's king, he's king over this, but Nineveh is actually like the kind of the capital city. In those side, those walls, and, and as, as Jonah goes into the middle of it, he begins just to proclaim his destruction. And I love what it says, they all repent, and they begin to fast, and seek God. Listen, and it says, and maybe he will change his mind. Just think about when you heard the gospel, or when you share the gospel. The idea of maybe is not really in there. If you turn to Jesus, he will forgive your sin. If you are in Christ, you will stand before God blameless. There's no maybe. But listen, they turn that even maybe God might relent. They don't even have a guarantee. Just think how that would change the gospel for us. Hey, I want you to follow Jesus all your life, and maybe when you get to heaven, maybe. Just think of how different that would be in our context. And then look at Jonah's filled with grace and mercy message. Not, right? But God does what God's going to do. And a people, Nineveh, that are far from God, come to faith in God. Now this is the problem. This is what Jonah didn't want. This is why Jonah ran the other direction. We don't have really one people group. But when we were attacked, attacked on 9-11, right? When 20, was that 22 years ago? Or coming up on 22 years. There was a people group, whether it be ISIS or fundamentalist Islam or a, a subsection of that, whatever. It wasn't really a nation. There were some nations involved. But it wasn't really one spot, one king, one flag. But we had a people that absolutely opposed us as Americans. Right? And that's about as close as we get. That'd be like Nazi Germany during World War II. Right? There's actually an enemy with a face. And that's who Nineveh was. Nineveh was that enemy to those people, and he really truly opposed them. And so before we beat up Jonah too bad, I want to just recognize, imagine your job was go tell ISIS about Jesus. Yeah, not easy. And I remember, and I told you this before, we were at a really large church at the time. We opened up for prayer, and, and I was leading one of the small prayer groups. I was in this group, and there's like this 12, 13-year-old girl. She's a daughter of a friend of mine. She's obviously grown up now. And I remember as we were going around and we were praying, she prayed for the terrorists. She prayed for the people that attacked us. And it was just kind of, you know, that verse, out of the mouth of babes, right? Like, out of the mouth of children comes amazing things. And I was very challenged because in some ways, I don't want mercy for them. I want to go and fight, and, and I want to be mad. But that's not the Christian response, right? Or it should not be the Christian response. They want to fight? We'll fight. Instead, she's like, God turned their hearts. Now, that one's going to be a lot more effective, right? Like, that answer is a good answer, right? Stop them from hating us. Turn them to believing you. We no longer have an enemy. But I remember the challenge, the feelings that I had in that moment as those images of the towers collapsing are fresh, and they keep playing it again and again and again on the, on, on the news. And this little girl said just something profound. And so before we beat up on Jonah too bad, we should rather identify with Jonah, right? We should compare ourselves a bit with Jonah. We're going to have a chance to do that in a, min in a minute. But 
Let me just put this up on the screen for you. God saves the Ninevites. God saves a city of people who are wicked oppressors of Israel, Jonah 3, to reveal his mercy. God's character is revealed both in his actions and judgments. In this case, or his removal of judgment. God's character shows, right? We learn about God both in what he does and what he doesn't do. I mean, to begin the story, he sent Jonah. Just because Jonah didn't want to go doesn't mean God didn't want him to go. And just because God, or because Jonah goes in and says eight words doesn't mean God doesn't care. And when God sovereignly turns the hearts of people, and they turn, they truly turn, they don't just ask for forgiveness, they begin to fast and pray and seek God in a maybe kind of circumstance. They treat it very seriously. And God relents from what he said. Now, did God plan this all along? Absolutely. God was going to save them. They were going to change. They were going to repent. Of course, God knows what's going on. And so if this story was about Nineveh, we'd see the end right here. Ta-da, it's done, right? The story isn't about Nineveh. See, the story and this book, this four-chapter book, is all about chapter four. It's all about what's coming. It's all about what Jonah must learn from God. So then, what we must learn from God. So verse 1, Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, he was angry and displeased and all that is so strong in the Hebrew that it's as if he is accusing God of being evil here. It's a pretty strong stance, right? God is completely crazy wrong and unjust for what he's doing here. Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord. So Jonah prays to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, you fans of the New Testament. Now you know where it came from. And relenting from disaster. I'm a fan of the New Testament. I didn't mean it that way. Uh, gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. I love what God says. Do you do well to be angry? So you're mad, are you? How's that working out? Right? So how's that working? Doing good? All right. So you're upset, are you? All right. So when we look at this, and, I, and this was the purpose for doing last week, when we looked at Luke 24, and we introed this whole series with the words of Jesus. Right? This, this is the purpose, and I want to keep this in front of us as we read through these minor prophets in the Old Testament. So I want to show you Luke 24, 27. These are right there as Jesus is walking with those disciples. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And as it said repeatedly, the author of Hebrews says this again, that, that the, all the law and the prophets point to Jesus. Jesus even later in this passage says that the law, the prophets, and the Psalms all point to him, right? So it's this collective way of saying the Old Testament is all about Jesus. It's not about Israel. It's not about Nineveh. It's not about Jonah, for that matter. It's all about Jesus. And so I want to give you a little something that you can look at, uh, that you can think through when you're reading any Old Testament passage. And so hopefully this all fit on one slide. But I want to give you these five ways. There are actually seven, uh, but five ways you can see Jesus in the Old Testament. Here's the first couple. Finding the redemptive storyline. So where are we in the redemptive story? Creation, before sin, fall, where sin enters in. Redemption, God fixing the problem. Restoration, like we just finished in, in Revelation. Restoration, where God restores all things. Where do we find ourselves in the timeline? In the redemptive story. Sometimes that's where we see Jesus in the Old Testament. Promise fulfillment passages, like prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. A great one that we use all the time, Isaiah 52 and 53, that proclaims the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus in such clear terms. Well, that's clearly prophecy fulfilled in Jesus, right? So promise fulfillment. Next slide. Oh, there it is. Uh, so typology that points us to Jesus, like the sacrifices of atonement, or even the, the red heifer or the scapegoat, those different things that are types of Christ to come. 
right? These things that teach us about Jesus. New Testament references of Old Testament passages about Jesus. When the New Testament authors cite the Old Testament and tell us how it points to Jesus, well, that's an obvious way to see Jesus in that Old Testament passage. And another one is learning about Jesus by way of contrast in the Old Testament. We're going to use that today, uh, although there's some typology, there's some promise fulfillment, there's a lot. But I want to show you Jesus by way of contrast. So let's read verse 3 and verse 4 again. Verse 3, therefore now, oh, this is Jonah praying to God after the salvation of the Ninevites. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord God said, do you do well to be angry? See, the gospel message, as we talk about creation, fall, redemption, restoration, right? God created us, loves us, designed us, made us, and made us to be worshipers of God. Our design is to bring glory to God. With all that we do, with all that we say, with all of our lives, we are to give glory to God, that our lives are supposed to point up to God, that our lives would bring glory to God. What, inter what interrupts that, what, what messes that up is sin. Sin comes in, and sin is simply when we choose our way instead of God's way. Sin is simply when we choose to go a direction God has said not to, or when God says go a direction and we don't. That would be the case of like Jonah today. God said go here, Jonah went over here, that's sin, right? That's disobeying God, and really what's going on in our hearts is we're saying we don't trust God enough to follow him. Rather, we're going to trust ourselves, Right? And so then, because of that separation between us and God, and you're going to hear this in a couple weeks in the book of Hosea, is like infidelity in a marriage. It, it creeps in and it, and it ruins a relationship. Right? And, and because of that, we're separated, like divorced from God. And so we need a mediator. And Christ comes to be that mediator. And again, we see this all the time, and we say it all the time, like, you can see Jesus hanging on a cross, suspended between a holy God and sinful humanity, the bridge between the two, the mediator, the one making it right. And the gospel is that Jesus came to us because we couldn't go to God. So he comes to us, he lives a life that you and I are called to, he dies a death, a penalty in our place, he is laid in a grave for three days to cover our sin. He is resurrected from the grave to give us new life. He then, living fully, bodily, alive, shows himself and then ascends back to heaven where he deserves to be because he is eternal God. And during, as he sits on the throne, he empowers us by his spirit to live for him as we await his final return. That's simply the gospel, those seven facets of the gospel. And in that, what we see is Jesus is fundamentally the opposite of Jonah. God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah runs away. God says, Jesus, go save the world. Jesus goes to the world. God tells Jonah what to do. Jonah's disobedient. God commissioned Jesus to do that. He is obedient, right? Jonah prefers his own comfort over other people. Jesus condescends to human flesh and lives here in discomfort for all people. Jonah wants only people he likes to be saved. Jesus came to save all people. Jesus came to save the world. Jonah prefers death over obedience. Jesus dies a death in obedience to the Father. Jonah proclaims a pathetic gospel that leaves people wondering if God would even restore them. Jesus comes and gives his life to preach a faithful gospel that we might know we have security in Christ. Jonah teaches us about Jesus and points to Jesus because Jonah's the savior to Nineveh that nobody wants. He's the fundamental opposite of Jesus. But he teaches us and shows us what some of the things that Jesus did for us meant. Now here's Jesus in his own words in Matthew 12. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, Jesus ties himself to Jonah. He says, here's what you can learn from Jonah. Everything else he did, I did the opposite. But here's what you can learn also. Just as Jonah was in the fish for three days, I too will be buried in the earth for three days. 
and three nights. And he proclaims his death, and then ultimately three days means his resurrection. Jesus preaches from Jonah and describes what he does to accomplish the gospel for us. So here's a takeaway. Here's a note for you. Seeing Jesus in the book of Jonah, Jonah, the actual book, not the person, teaches us about Jesus by way of contrast. Jesus then uses Jonah as an analogy pointing to his death. Just as Jonah was in the fish three days, so too Jesus will be buried in earth for three days. For you, for me, for the covering of our sin. He dies death, not just for a minute, but for days to know he died for you. That he gave himself completely and fully for you, for me, for us. And again, some Jewish guy 2,000 years ago coming into a Jewish family, being a Hebrew man, growing up to make sure that all people have an opportunity to become sons and daughters of God, not just those people. The exact opposite of Jonah, who doesn't want to see the gospel expand outside of his culture, his community. So now, let's take and, and let's look at the rest of this chapter, these words of God to Jonah and I want, to, I want to see us start to compare ourselves to Jonah. So Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. Booth means like tent or like a, an easy up, kind of the things we have outside. He sat under the shade till he, could see, so, till he could see, should see what would become of the city. Verse 6, now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Right? Again, now Jonah talks to a fish. I mean, God talks to a fish. God appoints a plant, right? I mean, like, everything in this story is obedient to God except for Jonah. And now we see Jonah. Jonah's finally less grumpy. Here he sits on a hill. He's trying to make some cover for himself because it's hot out there. And God causes this plant to come up and, and shade over him. So again, I, I want to begin to compare us with Jonah. So let's put this on the screen. Jonah's content in his comfort. So I want to ask, how are we more focused on our comfort than the mission and message of the gospel? How do we care more or when or how or where do we care more about our own comfort than the mission and the message of the gospel? That's Jonah. He's now shaded and comfy. Now he's happy. He's not happy that a whole bunch of people are saved. He's happy because he's comfortable. How do we do that? Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Again, even the worm obeys, right? So that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. Again. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. Again, Jonah just can't get out of his own way. So here's another place to compare. So here's a note for you. Jonah sees God as serving him. How do we treat our salvation, the gospel, our life in Christ, as if it is about making us happy, healthy, and content, as if Jesus exists to serve us? See, we do that. As if Jesus is meant, my faith, my salvation, the gospel is meant to please me. Like, I'm the end-all, be-all, not the other way around. Like, my job is now to serve Jesus. How do we invert that? How do we make it about us and not about others? Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? <laughs> and he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. That's just funny. And it's, just, it's funny because you know we do it too, right? Like, clearly, we've got to find ourselves in Jonah somewhere. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? He says, there's 120 human beings there and animals, and you want me to destroy the whole thing. You care more about this plant and your own comfort and your way of thinking about how things should be. You care more about that than you care about 120,000 people and all that's living inside those walls. See, this book is meant to teach us 
about the character of God, about the mission and the message of the gospel. See, God explains to him, he reveals his message. Jonah values his comfort and the way he thinks over the lives of people, 120,000 of them. It's not just like one person he doesn't like, like this whole people group. So God explains to him. See, Jesus taught this same message. He teaches us what happens when you claim to be God's people, but you do not live what he commands. In fact, he uses Jonah to explain that. So here he is in Luke 11. Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You see the contrast, something greater than Jonah, but here's the message in there. The Ninevites are going to judge the modern-day quote-unquote people of God, Jesus says, because they repented with Jonah. Who did he want them to repent? Eight words. And they repented and fasted on a maybe. He says, and someone greater than Jonah's here. He says, I'm here. I'm the one he pointed to. I'm the one that fulfilled all the things he didn't want to do. And you, quote, unquote, people of God, you don't want to share that with the world. That's Jesus' message. Jesus preaches from Jonah. He proclaims the gospel, his death and resurrection. He also proclaims his mission and his message. So what are we to do with this Old Testament book that we have kind of relegated to a little kid's story because it's got a fish in it. And it's a cool story. But see, it's not about Nineveh. It's about us. It's about the people of God understanding what our job is and what we are called to do and what we're called to lay down, our comfort, our likes and dislikes for the sake of the gospel. So I want to offer some suggestions for application. And I'm going to give you a minute to kind of share your takeaway with somebody near you. So for myself, I actually wrote two things down. One of them's here. I actually want to feel more, I, I know I am. I want to live more. That's a better way to say it. I want to live more as sent by God. I've said this to you before. I make sure the gospel is proclaimed here. But I need to do this in my neighborhood, in those places where, I, where others that don't know Jesus, in my family for those who don't know Christ. I need to remember that I'm sent, not just sent. This, this, this is just where we are. This is great. But I'm also sent to the lost in my own life, not just here. I want to live as sent. My other struggles, I, I want to lay down my comfort in that. Maybe this is where I'm comfortable and I need to get out of this. I need to do more outside of that. So that's my own kind of takeaway. Now, to you, if you would consider yourself a mature believer... How do you view the lost, and how do you teach the saved? How do you view those outside of us who look different, think different, are different, act different? And how do you teach those around you the message of the gospel to reach them? How do you view outsiders, and how do you teach those inside the church? So if that's if you're a mature believer, what if you're brand new to Jesus? What if you're a new believer? How do you understand the gospel message, and how do you speak it to others? What do you know about the gospel message? How do you understand the gospel message? How deeply rooted is the gospel message in everything that you do, and how do you share it with others? If you're here and you've never really given your life to follow Jesus, maybe you've never been baptized, maybe you never you know, made a confession of faith publicly, maybe you've never been a member of a church gone through the formalities of other people affirming that you, you're walking with Jesus and you're professing Jesus. For you, maybe you should hear the gospel of mercy and grace, and maybe what you can do is you can receive it. When the people in Jerusalem, as the church is born in Jerusalem, hear the first gospel message preached, after Jesus ascends to his throne in heaven, they ask the question, what must we do to be saved? And Jesus says, repent, and be baptized, every one of you. Repent, turn from how you've been living, turn to Jesus, and be baptized as that first step of obedience 
So if you're a non-believer, maybe that's you. I want to talk to kids and parents too. So parents, how do you share the gospel with your children? Where the expectation is that your children need to hear the gospel that they might be saved. Are you just thinking, okay, well, they're born here. We got them in church. Clearly, they're hearing the gospel. Or are you proclaiming the gospel over and over to your kids? And then kids, what do you know about the gospel? And how do you share it at your age with your friends or your family? How do you understand the gospel and how do you articulate it to others? Now I'm going to pray right now. And then what I want us to do is just want you to give one takeaway to someone you're sitting with. I'm just going to say one minute. We want to create a culture here where we're comfortable talking about scripture and the gospel where we kind of have some takeaways and we share them and we meet some people, but we learn how to talk more about the gospel message. And so I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give us a minute before we do communion. So let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We see you clearly proclaimed in Jonah. We see you as tying yourself to this Old Testament message that points forward to you. And Jesus, we see ourselves in Jonah. We see our reluctance we see our hanging on to comfort. We see us only wanting to do what we want to do and not the uncomfortable things that you call us to do. And so can we confess that and help us to repent of that. Help us to be motivated by the mission of the gospel and the message of the gospel. Whether that is to disciple others in it, to teach that to our children, to receive it ourselves, or even to grow in it. Help us to be those who live so much in the gospel that we are we are free and comfortable and motivated to share the gospel. I know our comfort and motivation isn't necessary. You call us to no matter what, but help us to get there, Lord. Help us to take these things and apply them to our lives in ways that are new. Help us to create a culture where we are comfortable talking about the message you give, the application we hear, and the gospel itself, Lord. Because it's your word, inspired by your breath, your spirit, and it's for our lives. So it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Would you just take one minute to someone around you and just share what is your takeaway today, and then we will take communion together.